This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about Rashida Tlaib, one of the two Muslim women elected to the House this year. John Nichols spoke with her. We'll listen to clips of their conversation. Also, travel to Mars. Now there's a way to get away from Donald Trump. Elon Musk, the billionaire who's co-founder of PayPal and Tesla, wants to build a colony on Mars. Katha Pollitt thinks that's not a good idea. Actually, she thinks it's a terrible idea, but it tells us something about the world we live in. She'll explain later in this hour. First up, is Brexit worse than Trump? Trump Watch starts right now. Which is worse, Trump or Brexit? For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's been named the new editor of The Nation, replacing Katrina Vanden Heuvel starting June 15th. He's been editor-at-large, based in London. We reach him today in New York City. Don Guttenplan, welcome back, and congratulations on the new job. Your listeners should know that I'm speaking to you from the editor's chair, the center of power at The Nation magazine. (laughs) (laughs) That should should give a whole different sense of the proceedings today. (laughs) Well, from the perspective of someone who's lived in the United States every day since Trump won the election, it's easy to say, of course Trump is worse than Brexit. Nothing could be worse than Trump. But you've lived in London pretty much the whole time since the Brexit vote, which was in June 2016, five or six months before our presidential election. So maybe you have a more thoughtful answer to the question. Maybe we should start with the two political systems. Americans will have a chance to get rid of Trump next year. Can the Brits get rid of Brexit? Uh, Not so easily. No, I mean, that's the, you know, so from the outside, the question is like, would you rather die by being run over by a train or be, you know, or having a safe drop on your head? And it's that kind of a choice, really. It's not much of a choice. Um, but when you're, when you're inside it, you realize that, yes, here in the United States, we have a chance to vote Trump out of office. Now, it's true that a lot of supposed resistance to Trump has focused on other means of uh, dispensing with his services. But um, and we've now seen that those other means are not going to be so easy. Um, that's not to, to prejudge the, the impeachment question, but it is to say that regardless of how the impeachment question plays itself out, we in America will have a chance to vote for a new president in November 2020. And uh, if Brexit happens, whether it happens by a no-deal Brexit, as the likely future Prime Minister Boris Johnson would like, or whether it happens through some version of a negotiated Brexit, uh, once Britain's out of the European Union, there is no easy path back in, and certainly no path back in that that is going to be able to be taken by 2020. Of course, that doesn't mean that Brexit is inevitable. I mean, you know, we already have Trump, and we don't already have Brexit. So there there are things to be worried about on either side of those. And, of course, if you were... If it were up to me, I would choose neither. But uh... Well, let's talk about the elections of 2016 a little more. The Brexit campaign and the Brexit supporters had a lot in common with the Trump campaign and the Trump supporters. Remind us of why these seem so similar. 
so Brexit happened first, and yeah. um, many people, including me, thought that Brexit was a very strong signal that um, if you believe in the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist was leaning in a populist direction, and that it could be a right populist direction or a left populist direction, but it certainly meant to me that Trump's victory was feasible. Um, and part of that is because of some similarity of issues. For example, immigration was an issue in both con- in both countries, and there was a certain amount of uh, racial resentment or xenophobic resentment, depending on which country you're talking about. But really, uh, the, the sort of wellspring of Brexit sentiment in Britain was uh, the extent to which globalization had devastated and hollowed out the economy and left large parts of the country just abandoned, and people felt they'd been left to rot. And uh, Brexit was their chance to say, no, we don't like this, we don't want this, and we don't want to go in any of the directions that the established political parties are promising to take us. So it was a kind of turn the table over and start again. And, you know, there are many factors that led people to vote for Trump, but certainly when I was covering the campaign in 2016 in places like Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, uh, Michigan, you met lots of voters who felt that the American political system had basically written them off, and this was their chance to say, we're still here and we don't like it. Well, Gary Young, the nation columnist who's also based in Britain, says there were some legitimate reasons for progressives to vote for Brexit. Certainly not the case for Trump. I I wonder if you agree with him about that. I do agree with him about that. I didn't vote for Brexit. I don't support Brexit. But The Nation published a piece by Lord Glassman, Morris Glassman, who's a labor peer, called No Deal is the Real Deal. And it is essentially the left Brexit case. So listeners can look it up if they want to refresh themselves on that. But it basically points out that a lot of the things that a labor government, a socialist government, would want to do in terms of both protecting and encouraging uh, manufacturing, manufacturing jobs, in terms of worker ownership, in terms of public ownership, taking things like the steel industry or uh, utilities back into public ownership are currently forbidden under your, your EU rules. So, you know, there, I mean, my own view is that, uh, you know, socialism in one country is as unlikely in Britain as it was in the Soviet Union, but but yeah, it's a case, and there are arguments for that case. And some would say another big difference is that the founding fathers wrote the Constitution with someone sort of like Trump in mind, a corrupt demagogue who was interested in enriching himself and his family, not interested in protecting minority rights or upholding the rule of law. And because of that, the Constitution gives Congress the power to investigate the president and to remove him from office. Does Britain have anything like that to deal with something like Brexit? Uh, it doesn't have anything like that to deal with Brexit because Britain is not a three-part system. It's not a balanced constitution, as constitutional scholars say. It's parliamentary supremacy. So Parliament makes the rules. Parliament can amend the rules. Parliament can bind itself. For example, you know, it passed the five-year, the, the fixed-term government act. Before that, uh, governments rose and fell depending on how much support the prime minister of the day felt he has, and now there are regular elections every five years. But, for example, if Boris Johnson is elected 
leader of the Conservative Party, uh, as looks quite possible. He will then become prime minister because the Conservative Party is the governing party. But if he tries to push through a no-deal Brexit, uh, one of Jeremy Corbyn's options as leader of the opposition is to call a vote of no confidence. Uh, if Labour votes unanimously for no confidence and Conservative uh, members of parliament who are against Brexit join them, then the government will fall and there will be elections. The reason, a reason for conservative members of parliament not to do that is that many of them would then lose their seats in such an election. So it would have to be a bit like expecting a bunch of really principled turkeys to vote for Thanksgiving. And in an early election, a lot of them would lose their seats to the Brexit party, led by that clown and con man, Nigel Farage, who, of course, served an apprenticeship in 2016 watching Donald Trump. Another factor, the Trump base seems completely immovable. His 37% supports him no matter how many destructive or crazy things he does. Is that also true of the Brexit base? Are there there any signs of remorse or changing of minds over there? There are some signs of remorse or changing of minds. I mean, it probably depends on why you voted Brexit. So voters who were... What, what should we say, low-information voters who believed the slogan on the side of the campaign bus that if they voted Brexit and Britain left the European Union, there'd be hundreds of millions of pounds for the, more money for the National Health Service, uh, and have now seen that that's completely was a complete lie, uh, you know, that, that Britain would be able to do all these wonderful things. And also, uh, voters were promised that negotiating trade deals with other countries would be easy, that they'd be lining up to negotiate deals with the mighty British Empire. And, and that's turned out to be a complete shock. So um, among voters who voted on those grounds, there's quite a lot of remorse. And almost all of the polls show that if there were an election held, if, if there were a new referendum Remain is now much more in front than it was when the old referendum was held. But, you know, these things could shift back and forth. Uh, and the sort of the kind of industrial heartland voters who voted because they felt that the Westminster government ignored them and was pursuing policies that had decimated their livelihoods, those people are as much for Brexit as ever. And similarly, I suppose I should say that you know, when I when I did reporting in Ohio a year after the election to find out what the voters who voted for Trump thought about how he'd been doing, um, I found his base was pretty solid. I found that, you know, people felt they'd, they'd written off or discounted the character questions, and they felt that he did what he said he was going to do, we, even, you know, even on things that the rest of us abhor, like the Muslim ban. Um, you know, he said he'd do it. He did it. The trade war with China, the tariffs on Mexico, those are all things, those are catnip to his base. So he, he's been really assiduous in cultivating his base, and I think that's the reason we've seen very little uh, erosion of his, of his base support. Gary Young writes, I'm quoting here, both Trump and Brexit are products of a political and economic crisis the left needs a coherent response to that crisis. Indeed, it was partly the lack of a meaningful response from the center-left that made both possible, close quote. Where do we stand now on a meaningful response from the left in both places? Well, in Britain, we still don't have a meaningful response from the left. I mean, I think that's one way in which Brexit is worse, is that uh, that on a 
from a policy point of view, Jeremy Corbyn has continued to straddle and continues to straddle um, and has not said, you know, we, we are for Remain. But let's, let's go deeper into the British perspective for a minute, because the, the thing to remember about the entire Brexit, whatever you want to call it, catastrophe, fiasco, is that it's essentially been a game of chicken. That's the best metaphor for understanding it, and that's still true. And in the game of chicken between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn has now won because Theresa May is gone. Now, you know, as the great political philosopher Jimmy Carter said, life is unfair, and now there's a new game of chicken, and Jeremy Corbyn has to figure out how he's going to deal with Boris Johnson, who is much more enthusiastically heading for the cliff than Theresa May was. Theresa May was hoping that she could head towards the cliff and then just make a quick turn at the end and Jeremy Corbyn would go over in one way or another, and instead she went over. Now, Jeremy Corbyn has to keep, has to keep whoever the next Tory prime minister, who is almost certainly going to be a more fervent Brexiteer than Theresa May, from driving over that cliff, and their foot is going to be on the floor, and if they do drive over the cliff, it may be that Corbyn ends up the next prime minister after that, but he'll be the next prime minister of a deeply economically crippled country. So, you know, it's not really in his interest to, to have that happen, but he hasn't yet figured out a case for preventing it. He's just hoping that the conservatives will continue to self-destruct, which so far, you know, it's disappointing, but as a pure, as pure gamesmanship, it's, it hasn't been a bad strategy. Here, it's, it's different because you have ideas that are being put forth. You know, Elizabeth Warren is putting forth ideas at a blistering pace uh, as to a, to a left answer to neoliberalism, inequality, you know, the economic fix that we find ourselves in. Uh, and, of course, you know, Bernie Sanders had a lot of ideas that were already out there that addressed some of these questions. So we have what's, what we at the nation like to call the ideas primary. That's happening. We also have what we at the nation sometimes scorn to <laughs> think about, which is the personality primary, which is also happening. And, you know, the truth is elections matter. Both of these things matter in elections. And there's a very large democratic field. And it's not, I think, unreasonable to hope that at least there'll be one or two left uh, standard bearers who will have interesting ideas and publicly acceptable person personalities uh, as we get into the, you know, the, the sort of the primary season where you go down from four or six to two to one. Um, I think we're not there yet. And, you know, we reporters always like to jump ahead and, and get to the, you know, cut to the cut to the chase. But this is a process. And I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful in the process. There are a lot of good ideas and there are a lot of interesting candidates out there. Uh, if we can get a candidate who has some coherent ideas that are progressive ideas, uh, you know, which was definitely not, which were definitely not on offer the last time, then I think that there's a very good chance that we can confine Trump to his base. I don't think the Democrats are going to take any of Trump's base voters away from him, but I think if you can confine him to 37 percent or even 40 percent, and you can motivate. 60% that are at least sympathetic to your message to actually turn on election day, then you've got a decent chance. It's certainly not going to be a sure thing. Well, now I'd like to talk for uh, a few minutes about your new job, editor of America's Oldest Weekly, The Nation magazine. You 
may know more about the magazine's history than anybody. You wrote the book, The Nation. Well, I wrote it. <laughs> you wrote the book, The Nation of Biography, the definitive history of the magazine. Uh, you've We've already remarked on the fact that during the 2016, you were one of the magazine's lead correspondents uh, on the road. In fact, you were on our podcast quite a bit reporting from places that a lot of us never get to. I, my favorite segments, I think, that you and I did were when you were in Montana and then when you were in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, those reports became the basis of a, of a book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. The big question for the next couple of years is what is the role of the nation in shaping America after Trump? Well, I think, you know, uh, since we've been talking about Gary Young, uh, I should say that Gary Young said that the next republic is optimistic but not delusional. And I think that's a very important Great. distinction to maintain as we go forward, you know, hopeful but not delusional. So the nation's role is to be the place where, uh, as it has been for a very long time, where liberals and the left debate one another civilly uh, and have their, have their arguments and have it out. It's and to be the place where new ideas can percolate, find support, you know, gather support, gather public notice, uh, and to be a place that subjects those who would be progressive standard bearers or those who would claim the progressive banner to critical scrutiny. Uh, you know, it's, it's all of those things. I mean, we have a, you know, not to mention our constant efforts to shine a light on inequality, injustice, you know, the sort of racial oppression, um, all of those things are a crucial part of our mission going forward, not just to 2020, but beyond. Another big question, of course, inevitably, is the future of print journalism. Everywhere newspapers in particular are losing readers. I've, I've heard that the Internet is growing as the place people look to for news, and the nation.com website has millions of, of readers, the print mag is what, something like 150,000. You know, I'm an old white guy. I like the print magazine. I love the cheap newsprint. It's printed on. Uh, will the print magazine stay alive? What is the future of print in America? The nation's print version will certainly survive, for one reason, because nobody has figured out a way to make the web version support itself. Uh, people pay to get the nation in their mailboxes every week. They pay for that experience. They pay for that connection, and they value it. And one of my first tasks as editor is to make sure that that experience is satisfying for them and that it, we, and we improve it. So, you know, one of the things that, you, that I hope to do as editor of the nation is to make the magazine more of a pleasure to read every week and to make it more of an experience that people look forward to and to make it something that surprises people, not, not in the sense that, oh, we might endorse Trump next week, not in the sense of being... Uh, ideologically crazy, but in the sense of telling people things that they didn't know about or, you know, exposing an angle on things that people thought they'd thought about but hadn't considered this angle or, you know, just bringing new things to people's notice. I want, I want people to, to look forward to seeing the nation in their mailbox with eagerness and anticipation. So I think that's, you know, that's a very important part of my job. But I also think that you need to separate out news um, which people are getting more and more from the web. Even, even people like you and me, John, and I'm yeah. one of those people who is addicted to opening a newspaper with my morning coffee mm -hmm. and sitting down with a print piece of 
newspaper in my hand while I have my coffee in the morning. My whole system doesn't really boot properly <laughs> if I don't do that. But on the other hand, if I want to know what happened, you know, around the world in the last 20 minutes, I've got to go on Twitter. And that's just the reality. So the nation has to be in all of these arenas. But we have to figure out what it is that we do that we do uniquely. And we are not, you know, we are not the uh, Huffington Post. We are not the New York Times. We are not the Associated Press. We can break news in the sense that we can, you know, if you have the old definition of news is that news is something that somebody doesn't want you to know, then the nation will always be a place that breaks news because we'll always be a place that people who have things to say that are that other organizations are trying to suppress will be willing to print. But we're not going to be anybody's breaking news source on a day-to-day. And in one way, we may be doing even less of that than we do now in a, to free up resources for being more thoughtful, for being more analytical, for being for being more of a kind of how to make sense of the news that you're getting on the web rather than just, rather than primarily a source of that news. How to make sense of the news. D.D. Guttenplan, the new editor of The Nation. Don, thanks for talking with us today. I hope we can do it again soon. John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the billionaire Elon Musk is funding travel to Mars. Katha Pollitt would rather stay here. We'll speak with her in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, John Nichols talks about and with Rashida Tlaib, one of the two Muslim women in Congress. But first, Donald Trump has begun his re-election campaign. That, of course, raises the inevitable question, what should we do if he wins? One possibility, of course, is leave, go somewhere else, Canada, New Zealand, or how about Mars? Elon Musk, the billionaire co-founder of PayPal and Tesla, wants to build a colony on Mars. Is that a good way to escape from Donald Trump? For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, I know Elon Musk doesn't say his Mars travel plans are are a response to Trump. What does he say is the reason he wants to go to Mars? He says some eventual extinction event will wipe out human life on Earth. But, I mean, it could be 100,000 years from now. Uh Aha. It could be tomorrow. (laughs) So he just wants to be ready, I guess. Uh, now, I, I, understand, I understand that you are not the only one who thinks this is a terrible idea. You have been joined by the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Katha Pollitt and Jeff Bezos together at last saying... That's so true. Saying it's, it, very, it, it's, it's very funny because first Musk sets it up by saying, the first journey to Mars is going to be really dangerous. <laughs> the risk of fatality will be high. There's just no way around it. It would be basically, are you prepared to die? And if that's okay, then you're a candidate for going. So that's irresistible, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then once you get there, it's work, 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 because Mars doesn't have anything. Um, and so you kind of wonder why anybody would do this. And Jeff Bezos says, uh, Mars is horrible. And then he says, this is so funny. My friends who want to move to Mars, and I'm, already I'm thinking, wait, you have friends who want to move to Mars? What am I missing here? Okay, he says, my friends who want to move to Mars, I say, do me a favor. Go live on the top of Mount Everest for a year first and see if you like it, because it's a guarded paradise compared to Mars. So his idea, and this is like even crazier than Mars, because at least Mars exists. Um, so saving humanity will mean living in these free-floating space pods. Now, why? Because if you stay on Earth, overpopulation and dwindling resources will mean population control and energy rationing. So because of these things, which don't sound all that terrible, he has to invent this whole new system. Um, but at least you can have as many kids as you want because and drive as fast as you want, I guess, <laughs> have a great big SUV, um, because you can have as many, they can keep building these space pods. And, and uh, Jeff Bezos is also in favor of having a lot of people living yeah, on space yeah. pods. Yeah, this is so weird. He likes the idea of a trillion human beings scattered throughout the solar system. And he says, we'd have a hundred Mozarts, and a, uh, sorry, a thousand Mozarts, and a thousand Einsteins. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but what if it's a thousand Donald Trumps and a thousand <laughs> Melanias, and what if you're stuck in a pod with one of them? Uh, it's just so crazy. So uh, I believe you point out in your new column for The Nation magazine that that having a trillion people isn't necessarily the way to get people who are wise and and uh, and heroic. Uh, in fact, there have been some small societies that did pretty well. Isn't that right? Well, yes. Look at ancient Athens. Um, one brilliant guy after another, I'm sorry it was all guys, in a city-state with a population of about 250,000, and that's counting the women and the children and the slaves. So that's about the same as Lubbock, Texas. But but Lubbock, um, Texas has only given us George W. Bush. I've forgotten that. <laughs> well, he makes up for a lot, I think. Um, so I want to go back to Elon Musk here for a minute. I thought he was a good billionaire because his electric vehicles have made Tesla a more valuable company than General Motors, or at least it did for a little while. I checked today. Now Tesla is back to being number three behind Ford and GM. But at least Elon Musk is not one of those bad billionaires like Donald Trump who just, you know, screws his workers and doesn't pay his bills. Isn't that true? Well, um, electric cars, which is what Tesla's all about, that would really be great uh, once it becomes affordable and convenient um, and, I, I mean, I do know some economists who think uh, that Elon Musk belongs in jail for various things having to do with his stock, but I don't really understand what that is. Um, but I think that the problem is you could be really good at designing a car. You can even be really good at, you know, SpaceX. I mean, that was a, you know, big thing. Um, but privatizing space exploration is a pretty frivolous way to spend a humongous fortune, um, and it's you know think of think of all the money that Jeff Bezos has, and it doesn't occur to him, my God, you know, I could provide um, health care for everybody, I could have uh, you know education for everybody, I could, 
I could make life so much better for millions of people. But no, I think I'll just have my space pod fantasy. But but Jeff Bezos did buy the Washington Post and made it into a really good paper doing a lot of exposés on Trump. That was certainly a good way to spend his money. Yeah, and Louis XIV, you know, I mean, really, the furniture was great. Um, <laughs> this is more than uh, furniture. Uh, of course, we I have... Know, furniture is very important, John. <laughs> I think your values are kind of strange here. Um, no, all I'm saying is you can be, if you're an immensely, immensely wealthy person, you can do some good things, but the bulk of what you're doing is maybe not so good. For example, take Jeff Bezos. He's got so much money, he could afford to pay his workers well. He could afford to let them, let them take bathroom breaks and not work so fast that their bodies are ruined after a couple of years in those warehouses. Why doesn't he think, well, I have enough money now, so now let me share it with the people who have helped make me so rich? Well, I have a counterexample of a billionaire uh, who, who uh, maybe has done a better job, Little, not as high profile, not as well known, Pierre Omidyar. He's the billionaire who founded eBay. He does not want to go to Mars. He does not want to live in a space pod. He's happy living on the beach in Hawaii with his wife and his three kids and giving his money to Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill for the intercept. Uh, isn't that better than going to Mars? Yes, it definitely is better than going to Mars. And anyone who'd rather go to Mars than Hawaii is really out of <laughs> And what about giving your money to Jeremy Scahill? Well, Jeremy Scahill, okay. I'm not so sure about Glenn Greenwald. But even that is better, is better than space pods. I should just say Jeremy Scahill, former colleague of ours at The Nation magazine, yeah. America's and, Oldest and Weekly. Right, and let's not forget Betsy Reed, former executive editor of The Nation, who is now, um, you know, the top editor there at um, The Intercept. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Katha Pollitt about whether it's a good idea to uh, to join Jeff Bezos in outer space. Uh, we have other billionaires who who do good things. Uh, let me just remind you of, of the, the liberal billionaires, Warren Buffett, the sage of Omaha, and Bill Gates campaign for higher taxes on the rich and give away a lot of their money. Michael Bloomberg spends his money on gun control, gay rights, and environmental advocacy. George Soros protects human rights around the world. Tom Steyer has spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, encouraging young people to vote. Aren't you glad we have such good billionaires? Well, it's nice to have good billionaires instead of evil billionaires. But I think the more important thing is that the whole way of sort of government by billionaire having them set all the priorities. It's not good. It's not good because just because you're good at making a lot of money doesn't mean you're good at knowing how to spend it. And it would be much better to tax these people so that the um, democratic society we pretend to live in could decide what, what actually contributes to the public good. So, so, uh, I've listed about half a dozen uh, good billionaires. Uh, of course, there's a lot of billionaires who we don't really know what they uh, do politically because uh, they contribute dark money. And my guess is, you know, 95 percent of American billionaires probably support uh, the Republican Party and voted for Trump. You think I'm wrong about that? 
Um, I think, I don't know. I think a lot of them certainly did vote for their fellow fake billionaire, their fake billionaire, fake, fake fellow billionaire, Donald problem. Trump. Um, but no, you think about it, I think charter schools, I mean, they fund the disease that their children have, but what about the disease that other people's children have? Um, I think that um, it's always better to have more equality, especially when it's a question of um, a question of how to spend lots of money. Look, Carnegie, Carnegie spent his life screwing the working class, and he made a fortune. And then he built all these wonderful libraries, so that's really great. You know, that was a really good thing. But actually, that money. That money kind of belonged to the working class. It might have been better if he just gave that money back to them. Andrew Carnegie, the great, a perfect example. Um, you will notice that the Koch brothers don't want to move to outer space. They're perfectly happy to stay in Texas, and all they want is tax breaks for the rich and continuing government subsidies for oil and, and gas production. They are, they're very down-to-earth about the future. Right, and one of them, I forget whether it's Charles or David, one of them is very interested in the arts and has given a ton of money to the arts, and now there's, it's the David Koch Theater, the former New York State Theater at Lincoln Center, um, which says it all, doesn't it? Like, let's take the name of a government and social and political entity off the theater and put the name of the major donor onto the theater. Um, and, uh, you know, he spent a lot of money redesigning the reflecting pool in front of the museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And, you know, but he's basically, they basically do terrible, terrible things. Um, and look at Shelley Adelson. I ask you, you know, <laughs> I mean. How, how can we forget about Sheldon Adelson? Yeah, yes. and his, his, apparently his wife is the richest person in Israel with a fortune of, I forget, whether it's $22 billion or $220 billion. I think $220 billion is nothing these days. Oh, okay, okay. So she still has something to strive for. <laughs> um, but no, this is not a good way to live. And if you look at the people that have historically been admired for their wisdom, it is not very rich people. It's people like Socrates, who had no money, um, Diogenes, who didn't even have a house, um, Jesus, um, Buddha. Buddha was born a prince, and he gave up his money so that he could pursue enlightenment. That's a better way to be. Jesus and Buddha, you heard it here on 90.7 <laughs> KPFK. Live. I don't usually have nice things to say about Jesus, but it, he's better than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. We could um, we, we could sing, but I think we won't. So, uh, just your your view is that the the people who made a billion dollars by founding PayPal or eBay or Amazon or Tesla, uh, uh, they claim that that proves that they're a lot smarter than we are, and therefore we should pay attention and to what they have to say. Uh, aren't, doesn't this prove they're a lot smarter than we are? It certainly proves something. No. no, it doesn't prove they're smarter than we are. And it's not just about IQ smarts. I mean, they're probably all pretty intelligent um, and know a lot about their business. Um, but that's not the same as knowing 
what makes people happy, what makes people good, what makes a good society. Um, uh, it's it's a completely different field of of knowledge and information. Look at Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg decided that he wanted to help the schools in Newark, and he wasted like a hundred million dollars. He didn't improve the schools because he doesn't know anything about education, and he doesn't know anything about Newark. It was just. You know what happens? You know what happens is people get the ear of these extremely rich people, some toady who knows the flavor of flattery that they want and knows how to get to them, and they follow that advice, and then they do something really stupid. Well, my fa- my, my favorite Mark Zuckerberg story I just have to tell you um, is he uh, he too decided he liked uh, the Hawaiian Islands, but instead of of Oahu and Honolulu, he decided uh, that he wanted to live on Kauai. So he found a plantation that was for sale, that was hundreds and hundreds of acres with incredible acres of uh, miles of beach. And he bought it. And the first thing he did was he put up a eight-foot-tall stone fence all the way around it, like two miles of fencing, and a locked gate. Well, it turns out that there are native Hawaiian land rights to that beach and to some of the lands inside there. And, of course, this is a very big issue in Hawaii right now. So there were, he was immediately sued by the Native Hawaiian organizations. And uh, he, it, it had never occurred to him. He had no idea that you couldn't just put a gate across the road and declare now it's all yours because he paid, you know, $25 million like that or something. Uh, of course, in the end, he negotiated a settlement where you know, 17 members of the Hawaiian group that claims these rights get a key to the gate, and all the rest of us look look through the gate at the beach we can no longer go to. Wow, that's an amazing story, and it tells you a lot. Um, I just feel that the qualities, the qualities that make you a good person and make you a wise person are very, very different than the qualities that make you a rich person, and this story is a good example of that. And... That, of course, inevitably brings us back to Donald Trump. You hinted that perhaps he was not a billionaire, which, of course, was his main claim to why he should be president of the United States. He's proven that he's smarter than we are because he has a billion dollars. But do you know anything about the evidence that perhaps he's not a billionaire? Well, wasn't that contained in um, various... Uh, financial information that was recently released to the newspaper that I didn't bother to read. <laughs> don't, don't you care? I, don't you no, want to prove? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, the thing that was really, you know, that was stupid just on the face of it was when people said that the fact that before, you know, before the election, the fact that Donald Trump had a lot of money meant that he wouldn't be corrupt in office. Yeah. And this shows a real lack of understanding of human character, because the thing that is true about all these guys, and certainly true about Donald Trump, is there never is enough money. It's never enough. I don't know why that is. It's whether it's you know competing for the best toys or some lack within or what. But um, of course, Donald Trump has been incredibly corrupt in office. And, I mean, he's making money with his hotels all the time and having foreign diplomats stay there. And it's a form of, practically a form of bribery. He's selling, uh, owner, you know, um, memberships to Mar-a-Lago to, you know, for 
hundreds of uh, a great deal of money to all kinds of shady people and um, the idea that just because he had a lot of money he would be pure in office just shows how I don't know people just don't understand I don't know what to say how could they believe something so stupid <laughs> how could they believe something so stupid Katha Pollitt wrote about zillionaires in travel to Mars for her new column at the nation you can read it online at the nation.com now Thank you, Katha. Always great to talk about zillionaires with you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. Bye-bye. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, John Nichols talks about Rashida Tlaib. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Alan Minsky sitting in for Sonali Kolhatkar, taking your calls. Now it's time to talk about Rashida Tlaib. Of course, she's one of the two Muslim women elected to the House, and our John Nichols spoke with her for the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. John, of course, is the nation's national political correspondent and a semi-regular on our podcast. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, for the first episode of the Next Left podcast, you spoke with the other Muslim woman elected to the House, Ilhan Omar. She's a Somali immigrant representing Minneapolis. Rashida Tlaib represents Detroit. She was born there. Her parents are Palestinian immigrants. Tell us a little about Tlaib's background and her roots in the multi-ethnic politics of Detroit. Well, that's a great place to begin because um, Rashida Tlaib's experience is, as you know, very different from that of Ilhan Omar. And it is a reminder that our Muslim American communities uh, come from many different backgrounds, many different places, many different experiences. And it's kind of remarkable that the first two women who came are, A, political allies and, and friends, but also representatives of these distinct traditions. And for Rashida Tlaib, she comes out of the Detroit area, which many listeners will know, uh, has a very large Muslim and very large Arab American community. Uh, the Arab American community in the Detroit area is both Muslim and Christian, and long history of activism. But in the case of Rashida Tlaib, her activism is, is far beyond just, you know, a religious or an ethnic experience, she comes out of the Detroit area, which is uh, deeply political from a union standpoint, deeply political from a racial justice standpoint. And she's tapped into all of that. And one of the sad parts about how so much of our media covers politics is that she hasn't had that many chances to really talk about all of the issues that she's engaged with and excited about. And so we did discuss a lot of that, including her backgrounds in civil rights and civil liberties, which are really areas of deep passion for her. 
And so it was just a, it was it was a quite remarkable conversation. I know she's a member of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and an ally of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who's also a member. They are the two socialists in the House. There's one socialist in the Senate. Remind me what his name is again. I think he's. I think it's Sanders, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and all of them, including Rashida Tlaib, support Medicare for all. She favors abolishing ICE. She's criticized both Saudi Arabia and Israel. And what did Rashida Tlaib do on her first day in office in Washington? Well, she did propose the impeachment of the president of the United States. And we talk about that quite a bit in our conversation, but it's important to understand, again, this roots back to Rashida Tlaib as a, a lawyer, an activist, a, uh, a person with, with a deep involvement with constitutional issues that goes back a long way. So she didn't propose impeachment casually. She didn't you know, just show up and say, oh, yeah, I don't like Donald Trump. It's quite the opposite, uh, although she was, had a lot of bravado and, and people noted that. But the reality is that when you talk to her about presidential accountability, uh, she has a, a strong understanding of this. And her concern goes far beyond Donald Trump. Her concern is with an imperial presidency, with a presidency that does not defer to or respect uh, the Congress, or frankly, in many cases, the will of the people. Well, we want to listen to a couple of clips of you talking with her. Set the scene for us here. Where did you tape your interview with her for the Next Left podcast? We did it in her office, and we did it in an afternoon, a sunny Washington afternoon, in the week that she was being attacked by Republican members of Congress, including uh, Congressman Cheney from Wyoming, uh, as well as the President of the United States, who were in this case, radically mischaracterizing comments that she made in an interview uh, in which she had decried anti-Jewish sentiments and and in which she had spoken about the post-World War II era and the arrival of Jews in a safe haven in Israel. She spoke about it in in very clear terms, and yet uh, she was targeted for pretty intense attacks. And one of the things that we try to do with Next Left, we'll talk about the news of, of the moment, but also to avoid the kind of over-focus on the moment, the, over, the of the momentism, as we refer to it, and to, to make sure that we get the full picture. And I must say, too, that just in drawing this picture, she's an incredibly outgoing, enthusiastic, upbeat person who's very welcoming. And it frankly makes conversing with her uh, a delight. Well, let's listen to a little bit of Talib talking with John Nichols here about growing up in Detroit. I mean, if you look at any movement, the ones that really transformed our nation started in Detroit. And it's not just the labor rights movement, but every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, I grew up learning about Grace Lee Boggs and uh, Mary Mahaffey and I mean all of these incredible women who uh, really led huge fights uh, against not only poverty and injustices in that way, but also even on world politics and on just the basic right to to human rights. And 
even to this day, I always tell people, you know, it wasn't just my mom. If you grew up in Detroit, you have mothers everywhere. Uh, every corner, like there's a mother that is raising you, is uh, teaching you to be unapologetic and strong. I, I mean, I remember black mothers in Detroit telling my mother, no, 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 you don't let anybody talk to you like that. You speak up. Like even teaching my mother, who's a new immigrant, to always be strong and be powerful and never to be silent. She mentioned Grace Lee Boggs. That really surprised me. Grace Lee Boggs was a Chinese-American Marxist who worked in black radical politics in Detroit starting in the 50s, continuing right down to her death a couple of years ago. It's fascinating that, that Rashida Tlaib talks about her now. Well, I've been to Detroit a lot over the years, and I can tell you that Grace Lee Boggs is someone who really touched so many communities uh, with her activism as regards environmental issues, sustainability, uh, and economics. And so I, in that case, Rashida Tlaib is not uncommon. But it's also something else that as a young woman, Rashida Tlaib got involved with the uh, Maurice Sugar Law Center, which is a, a legal project in Detroit with a lot of historic ties to all sorts of activism uh, in labor, civil rights, civil liberties. And so she was very much a part of the, the broad activist community in Detroit. She's into her community. She's into Detroit and Wayne County uh, and likes, likes talking about the people who made their mark. Well, of course, one of the best things about the Next Left podcast is the ways that it goes beyond what you just called of the momentism to look at big picture and historical issues. But you also asked Rashida Tlaib about the campaign by Republicans, especially Trump, to pigeonhole her as some kind of, I don't know, anti-American. Let's listen to her response describing Congress today. This is an institution that is very much broken right now and very much uh, in need of an injection of, you know, looking at real human impact of doing nothing. The fact that there's a sense of urgency for me and many of us, this beautiful rainbow of women that are coming in, we're looking at each other. Many of us are moms. We like fixing things. We want to do something now. And people here are like, that. well, that's just not how it is. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a six-year-old. You know, the six-year-old always asks, why, why, why? That's how I feel. I'm like, well, why? Why can't we move this? Why can't we move this? Isn't that a great thing to say about Congress today? I know. And, and I'll tell you, you, in picking the clips, and I didn't know which ones you'd pick, that, that's a really important one. Because when you talk with Rashida Tlaib, or frankly, many of the new members who've come in, one of their deepest frustrations is the dislocation of Congress, if you will. The fact that it's so wrapped up in finger pointing and accusations and, and a, uh, just an inability of, of folks to work together. And I can tell you that, that for Rashida Tlaib, her default position is one of deep concern for her district. And she represents a very diverse district with uh, people from all sorts of backgrounds. And frankly, with many people who have some real economic and, and social challenges. And she wants Congress to be focused on that. And, and there's simply no question. I, I think she would be very delighted to work with people from across the political spectrum. I think you do hear in that conversation a bit of frustration with, uh, with what Congress is at this point. And then I loved especially your last question. 
Detroit, of course, is the Motor City, the historic home, not just of Motown records, but of generations of great black musicians. Here's John Nichols talking pop music with Rashida Tlaib. I know politics well enough to know that I would not dare ask you who the best Detroit artist is, but what's rocking you? What are you listening to? Oh, do I don't do? know. I, I, there's been a number of artists. I mean, it's funny. I, I'm not one of those people even remember like who's singing it, but it like resonates with me. But you know, I am old school and I grew up in the eighties. And if you ever talk to my two boys, you know, my son one time asked me, what's that? I said, that's Prince. And uh, he's like, who's that? I was like, yeah, mommy grew up with listening to Prince. But I, I remember growing up with those artists, um, you know, Lionel Richie and, you know, these incredible artists in the 80s. That's the thing about some of us from the from Motown is we kind of attach to these artists that we can grow up and you just can't let go of them. Mommy grew up listening to Prince. Rashida Tlaib, the Muslim Palestinian American woman elected to represent Detroit in the House. She spoke with John Nichols for the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. You can find the full interview at thenation.com, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, thank you. It's been great having you on the show. Pleasure to be with you, brother. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch on KPFK. And now it's time for this week's Trump Watch TV pick. There's only one TV show that really gets life under Trump on the air now, and that's The Good Fight. It's on CBS, what's it called, All Access or something like that. CBS All Access. Uh, you find it on um, Amazon Prime. Uh, the Good Fight stars... Uh, a 67-year-old actress, Christine Baranski, as Diane Lockhart, a member of a law firm, a black law firm in Chicago, uh, headed by a kind of Johnny Cochran character played by Delroy Lindo. It's a law firm that specializes in suing the police for violence. Uh, but they all get drawn into democratic politics in Chicago in the age of Trump. Um, there's really nothing else like it on TV. It's now, it just dropped its third season. Um, I've just started watching it recently. You know, there's Saturday, Saturday Night Live makes valiant attempts to, to make fun of Trump, but it's hard to caricature a caricature. And there's also, I think of Ava DuVernay's miniseries about the Central Park Five, which is tangentially, tangentially about Trump because... Trump, uh, as a real estate czar in Manhattan, campaigned for the death penalty for uh, the Central Park Five, who all turned out, of course, to be uh, innocent. But the good fight really is about what life is like with Trump as president, what it feels like, what it's like to have it in the background all the time, even though most of the plots have nothing to do with uh, Trump. Uh, the, ver the very first show, season one of uh, – Episode one of season one begins uh, with Christine Baranski as Diane Lockhart watching Trump's inaugural speech uh, on TV and deciding she's got to get out of here. Uh, but then her financial world collapses and she has to uh, go back and get a job in a law firm. That's The Good Fight starring Christine Baranski and Delroy Lindo as the Johnny Cochran lawyer of Chicago uh, it's on CBS All Access, and it's our Trump Watch TV pick for this week.